Welcome to Silicon Valley Founder Secrets. My name is Christina Ju Weaver. And my name is Mahaman Yankamau. Our guest today is Zach Shelby. Zach is a serial entrepreneur and investor, and currently serves as a co-founder and CEO of Edge Impulse, and、uh, was the formal co-founder and CEO of Microbit Foundation. He is the formal co-founder and CEO of Cincinnati, which was acquired by Arm in 2013. Zach is a pioneer in the use of IP and web technology in low-powered networks. He received the Nokia Foundation Award in 2014 for his work on Internet of Things. He and his family lives in Santa Cruz, and he loves surfing, skiing, salsa, dancing as well. Zach, welcome. Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you, Christina. Hey, we're very honored to have you with us today. And just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your family, and what inspired you to be an entrepreneur. Well, I grew up in a small town in northern Michigan, really close to the Canadian border.、Um, it's about as far away in the U.S. as you can get to any major city. Nine hours to Detroit, nine hours to Minneapolis, and nine hours to Chicago. And、um, As a child, I I got really interested in electronics and computers. I started with a Commodore sixty four、mm. when I was about eight years old, and、uh, I just was、uh, inspired by how you could create your own ideas, create your own projects, create your own gadgets and inventions. And、um, from from my childhood there, I wanted to go see the world. Of course, when you grow up in a very small, isolated place,、mm. it's always Interesting to go somewhere else.、Yeah. So, my very first year of university at Michigan Tech, I asked to go abroad. And it's funny, a lot of、um, people from other countries,、uh, from Africa, from China, like the like you guys,、um, have a dream of immigrating to the U.S. Yeah, I emigrated away from the U.S. <laughs> and I went to Finland、um, when I was、uh, 19 years old. Wow! And I didn't come back. So I I stayed in Finland and I I. Uh, learned the did, language. Learned the language. I did my master's degree and my PhD、uh, research. Yeah. There in Finland, I, I lived through the Nokia boom,、mm. which was an incredible time for technology in Finland. Like the sky was the limit.、Mm. Resources,、uh, inspiring people. Everything was possible back back in those days. And I, I built a life there. I, I built a, built a house and and had a family, and I started my my first tech company, Sensinode.、Um, There in Finland, and it actually wasn't until 2013 when we were acquired by Arm that I moved back to the U.S. as、wow. part of the acquisition. I went from Finland to San Jose, California, to Silicon Valley. That's a huge.、Cool. That's a huge change, isn't it? So, if I'm correct, you have some、uh, relationship with Finland already in your family lineage, right? Is there something there? Well, like the area of. Michigan that I come from is a is has a lot of Nordic、uh, immigrants, so Finns, Swedes,、uh, Norwegians, Russians, and so my family has a little bit of that that Nordic、um, background. But really, it was more the exchange programs that make these things possible. When you when you're a student in university,、um, and you get a chance to go to exchange somewhere, that's your best opportunity to go and go and explore a new culture. I have、uh, a question.、Uh, when you're in Finland, the people. Can tell you American, or they just thinking you're one of them. Well, at, at first, of course, they can hear you, you, you don't、accent. speak the language, and your English、yeah. is what it is. So yes, but actually, after five years or so, people couldn't tell where I was from anymore because I look, I look quite Nordic, and my lang my my Finnish language was pretty good,、mm. so they couldn't tell where I was from any longer. They thought I was maybe a Swedish speaker or Estonian or something like that. Wow, it sounds like amazing! It take a long time for you to get the culture and the language. It helps to pick the language up quickly, doesn't it? Absolutely, but but Finland's hard. It's one of the more exotic languages in the entire world. It's one of the most difficult languages in the world because it's an Aboriginal language. It's not related to Latin at all. So、oh. knowing English or or Italian or French doesn't help you at all、uh, with Finnish. That's fascinating. Yeah, so so it took a long time to learn, and, and you just have to be stubborn, like I am, to to learn a language like that. So, did you experience reverse culture shock coming back 
to the U.S. and be in Silicon Valley? I did, and and I did much earlier, right? Coming back to the U.S., um, back from uh, from studies to visit family or for business trips, it was always a bit of a shock um, coming to the U.S., but also going back uh, to Europe is always a little bit of a shock too. Mm. And at some point, I just have settled with the fact that I'm kind of lost in translation. I really live somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. There should be an island for people like us that are kind of half European, half American. We don't really know which which we fit in. But that's, I guess, one of the one of the amazing things of culture. You can you can get more than one culture, and you have to value that. Well, yeah. I guess one good thing in Silicon Valley is they embrace all the cultures, so you exactly. feel right at home here. Exactly. Yeah, I want to explore just shifting gears a little bit. Some of the work that you've done. Um, one of the things that I liked about reading your profile was some of the experience you have in the Internet of Things and some of the technologies that you've helped bring on board. Uh, the thing that caught my attention initially was the work that you've done with the MicroBit uh, micro Foundation that you started in 2016 that has helped millions of people in more than 50 countries, especially STEM for girls and teachers as well. Tell us a little bit about this foundation, why you started it, and how it is impacting the world. So the Microbit was an amazing project uh, started by the BBC in the UK. And the problem that the BBC was facing was that um, 20-some years after they created the uh, BBC Micro, which is a Commodore 64-like computer to teach people about computing, um, after that, uh, they've had problems um, getting young people interested in, in STEM and technology, and in particular girls. There was a huge shortcoming of girls interested to study STEM subjects as they went into university. And um, a group of, of like-minded people got together from the BBC and um, technology companies like Arm and Samsung and Microsoft to go and solve that problem. What can they do to make a difference? And they ended up creating this really neat little tiny computer called the Microbit, mm. which made um, coding and invention and STEM really, really approachable for uh, really young kids starting at eight years old in primary school and their teachers and their parents who are not technologists. They don't have a technology background at all. In fact, teachers are quite scared of technology um, like this coming into the classroom. I can imagine, yeah. And and the BBC did a wonderful job creating this very approachable um, little computer uh, for them to learn about this. And I got involved when it was time to turn this from a project um, into a nonprofit organization that can go and bring the microbit everywhere around the world. Um, when we started the Microbit Foundation, um, it was really incredible because we had this 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 amazing little uh, teaching device, but we had kind of free reign on how we wanted to go and bring that to the rest of the world. What was the model? How did we go and mm. distribute it? And how did we go get it to, to teachers and ministries of education? And I really enjoyed creating the vision and the team and the, the partnerships to go make that happen. The scale, right? It was amazing. How do you go from one country and one nonprofit project mm -hmm into 50 countries and, and millions of kids and um, entire education systems all around the world. How do you do that as a small nonprofit? It, Sounds fascinating to me, to be fair. It's an amazing scale problem. And I think yeah. as an entrepreneur, that really, really fascinated me, even more than the technology behind it. That was mm -hmm. amazing too. Mm -hmm. But just uh, creating that team and that, that scale um, to make this amazing thing possible for everyone else in the world was really special. Um, and how many people in this organization do help out and all around the world? So we started out with two. Wow. <laughs> Were you one of the two? Yeah. So I, I, I got that started together with uh, Johnny Austin, who was my CTO, who also came from ARM. Mm -hmm. And um, we quickly brought on board all the people that we knew who were interested or really passionate about the project. Mm -hmm. And we grew that team to around 20 people mm -hmm. while I was there at the foundation. Wow. Is it still going on? Is it still doing the same work, helping people uh, learn technology and create things? Absolutely. So the, the Microbit Foundation is doing very well. Um, they've continued to expand 
um, the reach all around the world. Uh, a lot of activities now in Latin America, um, into Southeast Asia. Um, started programs in Malaysia and Indonesia that we didn't have before. Um, and just greater reach from local partners. So broadcasting companies around the world, like the Danish broadcasting company, went and picked this up just like the BBC and helped to bring this into the national curriculum in Denmark. Um, we've seen almost a complete rollout in Hong Kong. So almost every school in Hong Kong has begun to use the microbin in their curriculum. Wow. Um, Any programs in China? Yes, many, many programs in China. Really? Wow. Uh, China was... One of the really interesting experiences for me, having gone and spread this through China um, and attended some of the events, I went to a maker fair in Shenzhen mm -hmm. um, where we talked about the microbit and we did some, some big events and, and things there. And, uh, and just the, the response from Chinese students and teachers and engineers around this was, was incredible. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So inspiring. Um, I wanted also ask you a little bit about uh, your work at Sensenote. So you did some very groundbreaking work at Sensenote before it was acquired by ARM in 2013. Could you share us a little bit about the experience and how uh, the company was, was helping others? Yeah, when I studied computer engineering um, in the late 90s, I, I was really interested in the internet, just for myself. I was kind of an internet hacker building web services and internet services and, and just seeing what was possible at that time. And I always dreamed of applying that internet technology to, to what I was studying, which was um, really small computers, what we'd call these days embedded systems. Mm. And so when I, when I graduated and um, started doing research, I, I wanted to apply the internet to these embedded systems and new wireless technologies that were, were becoming available like ZigBee the 802.15.4 standard. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was just a magic combination for me. How could you make these small wireless devices um, part of the internet? How could you build new services uh, for those devices so much faster than what was available at that time? And this became something that I was working on in the early 2000s mm -hmm. and really pushing the limits of what we were calling just the embedded internet or the wireless internet back then. We really didn't have a name for it. There was no internet of things in the early 2000s. Mm. Um, but in, in practice, that's what we were doing. We were taking internet standards and going and, and pushing them down to these really small devices um, over very low power wireless networks and just changing the way that people built um, these connected uh, device systems. Eventually, uh, I kind of got stuck with my research. It's always interesting how these founding stories happen, mm. but uh, we literally got stuck. We did all the research we could. We'd This is your research doing at university? Uh, yeah, I was doing research at a, at a kind of government research center in Finland okay. and at the university in Finland. Okay. And um, we did many projects on this subject. So we we pr proved it to industry, including Nokia, um, IBM. We worked with a lot at that time. We implemented it. We did open source stacks. We, we showed that it worked. We wrote scientific papers showing that it really was feasible. And nobody took it into use. Ooh. Nobody. How did that feel? Kind of <laughs> neglected, right? We, we, we felt like we were failures. Uh, the, the companies we were doing research with just never got around to doing anything with it. Uh, the companies that we went and talked to about about all the potential uses of this just never really got around to putting it into their, to their product production programs. Um, when we went and talked at events, we sometimes got booed <laughs> um, by wow. industry events really? like the Zigbee Alliance have actually been booed on stage talking it? about the internet, well, how we could bring internet to, to small wireless devices. People and, thought it was impossible, it sounds like. People thought, saw it as a threat to the status quo. Oh, that's what that's what disruption is really about. People think of disruption as some kind of big business case. That's not what disruption is. Disruption is when um, people are so comfortable with the current status quo. They built a market. They built a product. Every vendor has their little lock-in with their little industry that they're involved with. Mm -hmm. And if something comes that's going to open that up, 
right? Change the dynamics. <laughs> Change the dynamics. Nobody really wants to be the, the one to take that first step. And I didn't know it at the time that it was a disruption point, but that's exactly what it was. And we just got frustrated as young researchers, you know, wanting to change the world. We're like, screw this. We're going to quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally quit my PhD in my last year. I never wow. finished my, still to this day, I haven't finished what my. What year were you in? I was last year on PhD getting ready to write my manuscript. And uh, this was 2005. And uh, we quit. And we said, nope, we're doing a startup. We're going to go, we're going to go give this stuff away if we have to. Uh, to make this happen. We really believe in this. And that's what we that's did. We strong took, conviction. <laughs> yeah, we took three, three of my um, co-workers uh, from the research center and we went and started what became SensiNode. And our, our dream was really simple. Let's go make IP go everywhere into these little devices that are battery powered and wireless, these things, right? Let's make these things like internet connected, whatever it takes. Yeah. Uh, we started out selling hardware and giving away open source stacks. And eventually through VC funding and expansion, we ended up uh, selling software and giving away hardware uh, and even creating cloud services for, for these devices. So, so it's a lot of things you have to do to make that kind of vision come true um, to the end. I'm curious how things changed for you because at some point you're getting booed off and just frustrated. What was the shift that made people begin not to see you so much as a threat or begin to take you seriously and it became a successful company? So, yeah, it's really interesting when you're at the kind of way, way early in a technology trend. Like we were starting to do work in the space in 2001 and 2002. This is 10 years before the Internet of Things really got kind of heated up. Um, we started the company in 2005, 2006. Still, that's five, six years before the Internet of Things really picked up. So we had to do a lot of the fundamental work to evangelize, to go out there and just tell people, hey, we can run IPv6 right down to these little devices. It doesn't cost much more energy and we can make it really high performance, um, very secure, and we can do all these amazing new things with this. And it just took hard work. We, we did a lot of public speaking. We went to a lot of events. And I think the really key thing was... Um, open standards. We went to a place called the IETF, which is where all the, the protocols that you use on the internet, um, HTTP, IP, um, Telnet, FTP, all these protocols are designed there. We write mm. open standards and everyone's free to use them. Mm. And we decided to go to that standardization body and say, hey, you know, we can turn... You want to set a standard? <laughs> yeah, we can turn these things into standards. We can give everyone the specs to go do this. Yeah. And I think that was really the big difference. We went and created open standards to give this this technology to everyone. And that slowly got the wheels turning and people really like going, wow, we can do this. Um, and now, yeah, we, we, we've talked about the Internet of Things now for a decade and and still today, that technology is going everywhere. It's going at its own speed, but it's it's really going into every industry, every type of device, every type of network mm -hmm. has been changed because of that technology we started creating almost 20 years ago. Wow. Wow. Now, is your current work as an extension of your uh, prior work, like right now, what you're doing? Not directly. It's, it's really interesting, this thread that connects the things that people um, care about and Edge Impulse isn't about the Internet of Things itself, but it is about um, enabling developers to mm -hmm. make use of technology and um, create really amazing inventions that I couldn't come up with. And that's the thing that so I... So you enable other people for exactly. this is, creativity. This is my kind of my, been my mission for my entire career has been creating technology that opens up possibilities for others. That's mm -hmm. what I'm really good at. Um, whether it was open Internet of Things standards and um, Internet of Things technology back with my first work, but actually it turned out that that's something I was passionate about regardless of the technology space. Uh, that's what got me really, really excited about the micro bit, just teaching kids um, about the possibilities for them to become an engineer, an inventor, right? And solve their own problems. That was amazing when we can give that tool um, to kids in the classroom or at home and see what they can do. And that's what we're doing now with with tiny tiny ML. 
um, is bringing machine learning to software engineers who are working with devices and seeing what they can come up with. What are all the amazing inventions that, that they're going to put this into use with? So you got me curious. I was going to ask you about TinyML. So I read about it from one of the things that I read on your uh, profile. And so what is TinyML and how is that changing the landscape of technology? Well, we've heard a lot about AI and machine learning uh, over the past five years in particular. It's like the buzzword in Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's a buzzword, but it's much more than that. If you really go and, and look at what's happened with machine learning, mm -hmm. it's been an amazing jump in several areas of, yeah. of science that's made that possible. Mm -hmm. um, huge increases in compute power. So the, the cost of compute per watt mm -hmm. um, has gone down and down and down and down. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, the expense of silicon has continued to go down. So we can get a lot more compute power for mm -hmm. less money because mm -hmm. it fits in smaller um, pieces of silicon, which brings down the power still further. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the science of um, computing neural networks and other machine learning algorithms has increased dramatically. And this this kind of merger of more compute for less power and um, increases in the tools that we have to calculate neural networks has brought machine learning to many, many applications. Now, a lot of people think about machine learning as big computers, big servers somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Churning away in GPUs um, to solve these massive image-based or video recognition-based problems, like facial recognition, for example. But in reality, neural networks can be as small and simple as we design them to be. There's nothing in the technology itself that uh, means that machine learning has to be applied, applied in big cloud problems with huge data sets. Mm -hmm. It turns out when you have problems with uh, sensors and real-time data, um, audio, uh, low-resolution still images, you can apply machine learning and make it very, very efficient so efficient that we can run machine learning right on the sensors themselves. Very small, wow. low-power, um, battery-powered devices running processors that cost less than a dollar. We can run real machine learning workloads and, and match very complex patterns. For example, is a label on a piece of um, goods that's being manufactured in industry, is that label on straight? Um, does it have a defect in the label? So is there some anomaly in something in an image? Uh, we can process that kind of information. Um, is a person that's moving, uh, doing a particular type of sport or activity, has an elderly person fallen down or are they agitated? Um, is the audio in a factory showing that a machine is broken? Things like that we can detect now with machine learning right on the sensors. And that's what tiny machine learning is about. It's about running machine learning on very low power um, small, cheap devices. So I'm excited about the potential for tiny ML for developing countries and some of the products that people in developing countries use. Uh, how do you see that as an application in places like China or Africa where people, energy is expensive, for one thing, and some of the things that they need to do, they, 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 they would do better if they're not so expensive. So mm -hmm. talk to that, that, that uh, idea of using tiny ML in developing uh country applications. Yeah, I absolutely think that we can do amazing things with TinyML um, anywhere in the world. And, and the reason is that the, the technology is even more interesting when you have a, a lack of power. So battery powered or even energy harvesting mm -hmm. types of applications. So you don't have a power grid. Uh, lack of communications or very slow communications. So TinyML doesn't require the internet. We can, we can do everything right on the device. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, right, cost. Something needs to be very cheap, portable, or if we need to make many of them, right, and make them mm -hmm. very affordable, we can do that with tiny. Uh, some of the applications that I've seen in, in Africa that I've found to be really uh, inspiring are around agriculture. Simple things of detecting when um, soil moisture is wrong, uh, detecting uh, environmental parameters in farms, 
even just detecting when there's when there are pests or other other problematic animals, right, causing problems with 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 farms, to simple logistics, right. When is it time to to harvest, right? Uh, what are the conditions of the roads, right, going to the market? Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more like that. So just making people's lives a lot a lot easier. Um, using the technology to tell what's happening, mm -hmm. why is something happening, automating these simple tasks for people. Uh, we've also seen applications in conservation. So one really inspiring movie um, made by uh, a friend of mine who's a, a documentary director uh, is called The Elephant Path. If you haven't seen The Elephant Path, I, I recommend that you, you watch it. This documentary tells about the Central Republic of Africa and. Um, elephant poaching problems and some of the park areas that they have where they're trying to to protect elephants and and they put listening devices um in the forest so big yellow boxes with with audio logging equipment where they're listening for events they're listening for elephant traffic um they're listening for human activity potential poaching activity but these data loggers get emptied and and sent to the US for for human listening um sometimes months after they're they're taken taken from the forest and and uh this is the kind of thing where you could apply uh, machine learning right at the point of activity and very mm -hmm. quickly tell is there something going on right where are the elephants moving um where is their human activity uh without having to go and 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 listen to this with a human way way afterwards fascinating yeah I always thought like machine learning has been, you know, very expensive, you know, like uh, on the, you know, it's not everybody can afford those kind of, uh, you know, um, capability. But now from what I learned is, you know, like a lot of places that lack of resources can be used, you know, like smart city or mm -hmm. desert or, you know, lack, you know, lack of computing power. So I can see like, wow, there's a lot of uh, potential use. You it's know, very for, inspiring. Like yeah, when you came you. in. Earlier today, I saw your ring and you were telling me, can you just tell us what that ring that you have on, <laughs> what, what it can do? It sounded fascinating what you told me. Yeah, no, it's, it's what's possible today with, with sensors is amazing. I mean, these days there are wearable devices, mm. uh, smart rings, just one example. Mm. But wearable devices where you can um, measure uh, body signals. So, for example, your heart, blood movement mm -hmm. uh, that go through your, through your veins in your mm. finger or in your wrist. And that can tell a lot of things about your health, uh, around your, your sleep quality, your sleep stages, um, how your heart's doing, how much activity you're having. Are you recovered from the last exercise you did? Mm -hmm. Are you ready for, for more exercise and stress? Um, right down to your activities. So accelerometers and gyroscopes can tell a lot about um, how much you're moving, what kind of activities you're, you're doing while you're moving, and just help you um, think about your well-being is that your product uh no this is this is something from uh, a finnish company called aura that i'm wearing oh, okay. or is a really uh really amazing company uh and that that i like to wear um but but there are there are many like health wearables that that are out there are coming to help people um also in in health facilities to monitor how they're doing so we're seeing more um wearables in in healthcare mm. itself as well, just to help uh, patient recovery, mm -hmm. right? help patients while they're in the hospital, mm -hmm. um, and just helping people live a healthier life, right? Mm -hmm. Getting more out of their life uh, thanks to wearables. And I think wearables is a great example of where tiny amount is going to see tons and tons of applications. Wow, get a lot of information from the tiny device you have. Yeah, yeah Zach, one of the things that I've been curious about from the work that you do in machine learning is how could we get more people from Africa involved in machine learning and data science? Yeah, I think that's super important. Um, as with all engineering and invention, you need to solve local problems with local skill sets. You can't expect an engineer to parachute in from Silicon Valley and understand how to solve the problems of a villager right, in, mm -hmm. in agricultural mm -hmm. Africa. It's impossible for them to get their head wrapped around what's really going on and what problems mm -hmm. need to be solved and the way they need to be solved. So we, we really need to empower African engineers, developers, uh, students um, to make use of technology to solve their own problems. That's something I believe really strongly about. Um, 
there's an amazing uh, program called Data Science Africa that goes on um, every summer. It 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 uh, varies city to city. Different mm-hmm. universities host mm-hmm. Data Science Africa, mm-hmm. um, and usually brings in um, a few hundred uh, students from around Africa who are studying data science and machine learning, and uh, companies and, and people from around the world go and sponsor this event and go in um, every summer to Africa and teach these students about new machine learning technologies. Wow. And uh, while, while at ARM, um, we sponsored Data Science Africa, my co-founder, Jan Youngboom, has attended several times, and he's really enjoyed uh, bringing real embedded hardware gadgets there, uh, building real machine learning models. They, they put a, a vision model in the field to detect uh, different types of animals. Mm-hmm. And, and with the students found all the problems with that, how hard that is, right, to get it right when mm-hmm. the giraffe shows up as a telephone pole, <laughs> for example. Uh, there's so many things that you don't expect in the field. Uh, and I'd love to see a lot more of that experimentation going on. And that's something we're going to continue to be involved with is, is helping out with with Data Science Africa and helping teach teach more Africans how to make use of this this technology. You know, one thing that I'm thinking, even as you speak, and I know this whether this will work or not, is some type of online introductory platform to get more people who may not be able to come for these conferences mm-hmm. to learn about it and how they could get open yeah. source uh, information on how what to do in their projects. I think that would be interesting. No, you're totally right. I mean. Co- Events are interesting in the way that mm-hmm. uh, you get this interaction with people and mm-hmm. you get inspired by them in ways you can't um, just online. Mm-hmm. But only a couple hundred people can attend this when there's thousands and tens of thousands of people that should be there. Yeah. Especially so, Silicon Valley is very expensive to, you know, for some of the people travel overseas. Yeah. But even within Africa, it's yeah. hard yeah. To, to get people moving all the way across the continent. It's huge oh, okay. yeah. to, to attend these events. So. Mm-hmm. Making the same material and tutorials and information available online for mm-hmm. people would be a huge service. Yeah, um, a lot of people that are getting really excited about web-based events or or hybrid, physical plus web events. That's yeah. something that my team at Arm was starting to experiment with in mm-hmm. our developer events. So, mm-hmm. run the event and then make it available to developers all around the world for the rest of the year, mm-hmm. in a form that they feel that they're really part of it or really. Um, learning something um, in a more intimate way than just an online course. Mm-hmm. And even some of the tiny ML information that you said, there are now a lot of hubs like uh, these incubators and accelerators that are springing out all over East Africa and West Africa. Yep. If there's a way to connect with them and mm. provide some of the open source uh, material to them, they yep. can incorporate them into the work that their startups are doing. I think that's another way to uh, spread that. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, you have accomplished so much in your life and uh, already. So what do you think, um, what, what are your superpowers? Well, I think um, it took me a long time to realize this about myself, but I think um, inspiring other people to take technology and, and create things with it is really my superpower. That's what I've, both been blessed to have the opportunity to do that, right? To have early access to these amazing waves of technology. I was lucky to be working with embedded computing and the internet as a young as a young engineer. It just happened to be my interest area. And that's just luck. Whoever tells you they knew that this thing was coming, <laughs> BS, uh, right? <laughs> I was lucky. In the right I, place, the right time. Uh, yeah, that's just what I, what I was interested in. It happened to be in this lifetime, right? Yeah. That was useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I could have been studying something completely different and it would have been totally like useless. Dancing. Yeah, totally useless maybe, right? But <laughs> I happened to be working on some technology that, wow, by making that available to people, it, it can make a real difference. And that's something in my career I've been lucky to be having access to these amazing things ahead of time. And, um, and I'm then to have the ability to go and bring that to other people. Uh, I, I think the other thing that I've had as a, as a superpower is, um, is being able to put teams together uh, to go build things really early, right? Before there's any idea whether this is going to be successful or not, I've been able to, go and build these teams to go do it, inspire people to, 
to go take the chance to go change the world, right? Before we know what's going to happen. And, and I think that's something I realized later that not a lot of people feel comfortable with the unknown, right? Yeah. Comfortable with leave of faith. <laughs> yeah, the risk, right? Yeah. The risks are immense, but also just the unknowns. It's a complete unknown. How this thing's going to play out? Is it going to work? Mm. Who's it going to work for? We sometimes don't know when we start working on these things. Mm. And I like it. That's actually the phase of a startup that I really enjoy is this early exploratory on um, building this thing that nobody knows what it's going to become. And uh, when it becomes big and operational, I tend to bring in more people and, and that help me to, to go and grow those things. Is there fear at the time that you're dealing with the uncertainty and how do you manage the fear, if any? There's certainly fear. And I think a level of fear is a good thing. Um, it keeps you from doing stupid things because <laughs> okay. there's always a difference between uh, taking a risk, right? Um, and just being uh, reckless. And I always think that's an important thing for everyone in working with companies um, and technology in particular to keep that, that in mind, right? There's a, there's always a risk reward, but the, the risk has to be, sane right it has to be logical hmm. there has to be some big thing that you're going to achieve that's going to change the world because you're going to do this and you have to know that you're going to like doing it you're going to be inspired doing it and you're going to be able to help inspire other people otherwise it's just not worth it um and i think that's something that i've found ways to make myself comfortable with that just like keeping that risk reward for myself that it works for me right and that might not work for another person hmm. What inspired you to do the work you do? Well, I think um, as a child, getting access to computing, mm. um, that I could do things. I was quite like a, well, a lonely child, but a little bit like Are you the only child? introverted. Okay. No, I have two younger brothers. Yeah. But I was definitely introverted, more introverted as a child, mm. um, doing my own things with my own electronics kits and things. and. <laughs> That, that's what I was interested in, right? Building things on my own. Did your parents encourage you to? They did. Okay. They did. Not not like extraordinarily, but, <laughs> but small things like, oh yeah, here's this kit to play with. And my father bringing an old computer home from work. Here's this computer we don't need anymore. Do you want to play with it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, those small things make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I think that getting access to technology um, made a big difference for me to see that, wow, I can build these things. I can do things that that are amazing. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that hard. Actually, it just takes trying it, right? And trying new things and learning these things um, faster than other people. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I, um, I feel inspired. I, I'm on the opposite side of that spectrum. I, I'm terrified to break anything with my hands. I don't tend to use my hands to do things, even though I'm an engineer myself. One thing that I think about when I talk to people like you is, the role of mentors. Mm. Growing up or even in your career, have you had any mentors? And if you have, how have those mentors helped you? Yeah, I've always had um, mentors at different periods of my career that I've really looked up to and have helped me along. Um, I'll um, think of two that come to mind right away when I was younger. Um, one, a uh, professor, uh, Professor Petri Mahanen, uh, a Finnish professor who who gave me my first job um, straight from a, an exchange student, right? A young exchange student in Finland, <laughs> didn't know a lot of people, um, but really inspired to do these embedded wireless things. I had some crazy ideas of things I wanted to work on. And and he found me applying for a, a summer internship and, and took me under his wing and, and said, you know what? Uh, we can do amazing things. We'll do all these things you want to do. Uh, and I'll make it happen, right? Whatever the resources, whatever the projects we have to find to go do this stuff, we'll do it. And that that was a great kind of um, mentor to find that could just like, the sky's the limit, right? We're going to go do these things, right? These mm -hmm. amazing things. And Petri was was that kind of professor, um, really, really uh, inspiring and forward-looking at that time. This is the late 90s, 1998, he was already thinking about these things and, and, wow. and, and enabling us young researchers to go do it, which was really amazing. Um, the second one uh, was a, 
a professor from the U.S., actually, from Purdue, that was uh, a visiting professor in Finland. And right when I started my studies back in 1996 in Finland, uh, I was brought on as a as like a lab assistant in a research group, a wireless research group. Lab assistant means you do all the dirty MATLAB coding for the researchers, <laughs> so they don't have to do it. So I was the MATLAB uh, monkey back then, and uh, and I didn't like that. I didn't like the deep wireless theoretical math. I wasn't a theoretical mathematician. I, I like math, but I like to use it, not to create these big theoretical models and, and try to solve them, um, which is what a lot of the people at this place were doing. And I thought, wow, you know, what's wrong with me? This is the stuff I'm, I, I kind of am interested in, but why don't I like this kind of work? Um, this professor, Carlos Pomalazares, Carlos um, was doing wireless networking research, which is a completely different field. It's building big networks. Like we talk about 5G. Mm-hmm. He was modeling things like 5G. How Back does then. That- Back then, how does the whole 5G network work? Um, what happens when you, when you flood it with traffic? And how do you fix that? And how do you make these routing and other protocols better and better? Um, and they use some amazing simulation tools to do that. I, I watched this and I went, wow, that's, that's really amazing stuff. I want to get involved with that. So in my spare time, I started working with this professor. And he kind of took me under his wing back then. And, uh, and that's how I got into the research field I got into, which the internet and protocols and putting them on small devices because of Carlos. He, he gave me that chance to, to kind of inspire me with that. And I think for, for it happens really when you're, you're a student, when you're a little yeah. bit younger, yeah. you get somebody who, who, who shows you that something's possible and something's an interesting area and just encourages you to, to run with it. And of course you were uh, willing and curious enough to follow the elites as well. So yeah. you had something to do with it. Cool. Yeah. We talk a lot about success and luck and uh i want to like to ask you what are the biggest lessons you learned from the mistakes you have made in your career so far just kind of for our audience to learn yeah i've definitely made plenty of mistakes <laughs> uh, but i don't get too hung up on them mm-hmm. i always think of them as uh just learning processes like none of this stuff is going to be perfect like when mm-hmm. we build enterprises as entrepreneurs, we're jacks of all trades. We wear 10 different hats doing things that we were never trained to do. I was never trained to do accounting. And did you tax. do that? I did everything. <laughs> I, I've done everything you can imagine in these companies when I've built them um, because somebody had to do it. Mm-hmm. And when you're the founder and CEO, especially, right, you get all those jobs. And so, and so I think it's natural that we make mistakes. I think mm-hmm. the the thing is that we need to learn from them and get better mm-hmm. at doing those things. Um, I think one mistake I made back in the early days with my with my first startup, SensiNode, was was focusing too much on the technology mm-hmm. and not enough on the the customer and the user experience. Right, not enough on on the go to market. How do we get this to people? It's great if you make this wonderful technology, but if it doesn't go be used by people, um, you're missing out, right, on the magic. And I think the magic is getting this technology to people who can do something with it. Mm-hmm. And I think we we definitely, as as young engineers becoming entrepreneurs, we we focus too much on the technology. And we built lots of great excited excited about it. <laughs> products, and but we didn't always know how they were going to get deployed. And we learned. We brought on great team members we brought on external ceo at some point and mm-hmm. we brought on the team that helped us get there mm-hmm. but we could have gotten there a lot earlier on our own if we would have known that right and we would have known how to focus on the right things mm-hmm. that's one thing i definitely was was made mistakes in um but i i didn't uh didn't feel bad about it in the end because it all worked out right we learned it was a learning process mm-hmm. And I think that's what you kind of have to keep in mind with mistakes. They're, they're a learning process. You can't get yourself down too much um, from making them. you got to move on. That's very encouraging in terms of reframing the mistake and seeing that you could learn from it. And I, I actually feel like my own mistakes have taught me a lot more than they've taken from me. So thank you for saying that. Didn't they say that failure is mother's success? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one proverb that yeah. I've had every now and then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Um, so, you know, you're a busy entrepreneur doing different things. How, how do you uh, find a healthy work-life balance? How do you stress? Well, I think one important thing as an entrepreneur and especially as a founder mm-hmm. is you have to keep in mind that you are not irreplaceable. Mm. And you have to delegate and trust. And I think this is something that people, first-time entrepreneurs in particular, make mistakes around. They think that, well, I started this thing, so I have to do all of it. I have to have my hands in everything. Mm-hmm. If I don't decide and, and think about and know how all these things work, something's going to go wrong. Mm. But it's not like that. Your job as a founder, first and foremost, is to have a vision. Mm-hmm keep people focused on the things they need to be doing to get towards that vision and then step out of the way. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. It really is. Hard a, to do, right? It really is as simple as that, but that's some of the hardest things to do. Really? Having a big vision and being able to articulate it is really hard. And delegating and trusting is not easy when you're, you've started something and it's your baby. But I think for me, that's the trick that I found over the years. I wasn't, necessarily great at it when we first started our, uh, with SensiNode. But as I've done more of these and, and learned to be a leader, I found that those three things are, are the key to, to keeping your own life in balance too. Because as a founder, you have to be able to focus on the things that matter that you need to be doing. And you've got to um, give your team the trust to do the things that they know how to do and probably know how to do better than you Every single person on my teams, individually, they do their thing better than I do their thing. And that's exactly how it should be, right? As a leader, my job isn't to be the expert in everything, right? It's to keep the ship moving in the right direction and keep people motivated and feeling safe and trusted, right? And so that's where that delegation and trust comes in. If you you don't delegate and trust those people, they're not going to be able to go and do those things for you. That's so true they're going to come back to you all over and over. Well, what about this? And what about this? And you'll feel like you have to micromanage, right? <laughs> um, even when you shouldn't be. So that's where that delegating and stepping out of the way, letting those people do their job um, and trusting them to even make mistakes themselves is really important. That's so, something that I've struggled to find a balance with as well. When I've had my own startups is, okay, how do you, the person with the big vision just know that they had a share part of it and yeah. that you brought them on board for a reason that they know how to do something better than you. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. And just in terms of physical health and emotional health and um, mental health, let's say, do you have any practices daily or weekly that you do that you know keep you sane and that, that, that keep you effective in your work? Well, I use a lot of exercise and just like hard physical sports has been my thing. So I found like here in California, surfing has been wonderful for, for my physical health. So just staying in shape, but also just being close to nature, right? Being somewhere where there isn't any connected device beeping at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, nobody can send me a text message when Not I'm out there. Not internet of things. <laughs> no, no, uh, well, there is a project called SmartFin, which is really cool, where we're measuring... Hu- but, but that doesn't beep at you, at least. Um, SmartFin smart smart okay. is okay. You mentioned it, so you say a thing or two about it. <laughs> yeah, SmartFin's a nonprofit project. Um, uh, in cooperation with the Scripps Institute in San Diego, where they're using surfers to measure water quality near the shoreline, which is a really hard area to measure. And so they put sensors inside a surf fin, which gather scientific data and then transmit it to the cloud periodically uh, for scientists to do their work. So it's actually like crowdsourcing um, water data uh, with surfers. That's fascinating. That's yeah. a project I've been helping out with a little bit and encouraging the the team to go and do it. I think it's a wonderful project. Um, but no, I, I try to sign off when I'm out doing something. And for me, it, it just has to be kind of like an intense sport where I just take my mind off everything else. Um, skiing is quite similar, right? When you're out skiing, you're kind of disconnected and doing your own your own thing. Um, I also think it's really important to, to sleep. Um how many hours of sleep do you get? I well, this tracks my sleep actually. So <laughs> I, right now I'm getting eight hours of sleep, seven and a half, eight wow, hours of that's sleep. Perfect. Now pretty regularly. 
travel messes that up totally. <laughs> um, but as long as I can, you know, stay in one place for a, for a while, I can get into a good sleep rhythm. And I think that's super important too. And then eating well. I think a lot of people disregard how important it is to eat really well. Eat good food, eat small amounts. Do you cook? I cook, but I'm more, I'd say I'd more appreciate um, good food. But I have a family, right? So we, we cook food with the family and yes. we try to eat fruits and vegetables and salads a lot. Mm. Um, a lot of fish and sushi I found to be really good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important as well. So there's no, I don't think there's any silver bullet. Um, but I do think you have to keep this balance of you know, exercising, um, eating well and sleeping well, mm-hmm. regardless of how busy you are. In fact, the whole busy thing, I think, is a little bit of a myth. To me, I think people are making themselves busier than they need to be. Mm. I think everybody should really think about what are the things they really need to be doing? Mm. Are there things that they can push off? Do you have to have all those meetings? Do you have to meet all those people? I've started to scale a lot of that down as I've become just better. And what I, what I do is mm-hmm. focusing and choosing the things I do a lot more carefully. I've, gone, I've skipped conferences sometimes at the last minute lately because mm-hmm. I've just found that I've got other things I need to be focused on. I don't have to go there. Or I've gone somewhere and I've had the three or four meetings I have to have and that's it. Then I've left. And I haven't done all the other stuff I used to do because I felt like I have to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes also just like scaling back to the things that you really need to be focused on so you can keep yourself healthy to do those things. Mm-hmm. things important skill to acquire. Thank you. Set up the priority. Zach, I would like to envision this. Um, let's say today is December 31st, 2021, uh, two years down the road. All your big dreams has come true and dinner has held uh, has been held in your honor to celebrate. And you have been asked to give a short talk. So what accomplishments would you like, uh, will you be celebrating at this event? Hmm. Well, First, I, I'd really like to have um, made this tiny ML available to, to everyone, all the developers who want it. I want them to have it and for free to begin with because mm-hmm. it's an educational process. Mm-hmm. When um, you introduce any new technology into a field, you got to help people learn about it. Mm. And in the end, developers are on a journey, right? Developers are learning about their next thing all the time. And you can't expect them to go from nothing to like a commercial user immediately. You've got to give them a way to learn how to be mm-hmm. a user of this thing. And that's a process I, I believe in a lot, this um, giving, giving developers access to things. And so uh, at the end of this month, we're actually launching an entire free um, platform access to developers all around the world for TinyML. And I'd love to see by the end of 2021, I'd love to see that be something that everyone has access to. And it's become a normal thing that everyone just knows that, yeah, of course you can do that. Of course we apply machine learning to these problems, right? Mm -hmm. Right on the inexpensive devices, battery powered, um, with limited connectivity, we can go solve amazing problems. That, that would be something I'd love to, to talk about at this, this, this dinner. Um, the other one would be is entrepreneurship. I, I've something I've really, Valued is the ability to go help out other founders. Mm-hmm. I've tried to mentor founders when I get the chance. Um, not, I'm not very organized about it, but more just through meeting people who I think are working on interesting things um, and helping them out a little bit, mm-hmm. giving them the kind of advice that they can't talk to anybody else about. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary thing sometimes as a founder. You're dealing with things that you can't talk to your own staff about. Yeah, you probably even can't talk to your own family about. Mm-hmm. They might not the understand. Lonely place. It's a lonely place. Yeah. So, something I've found to value over my years is uh, is the founder network that we have. Just being able to go to other founders and talk to them about, you know, I'm dealing with this really hard thing, or I'm really stressed out about fundraising, and I don't know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. You can talk to another founder about that. They're like, oh yeah, you know, man. This last round I had, it was bad. <laughs> and they won't tell that to anybody else, right? Yeah. But they'll tell you as another founder that, yeah, mm-hmm. I've gone through that same thing. Because they know it's a support thing. It's not, you're not going to go and talk to somebody else about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something I've, I've tried to help other founders out with. And I, I'd, I'd love to go to a dinner at then and feel like there's, there's a bunch of people that I've also helped them 
mm-hmm. uh, get through the things that they're working on, mm-hmm. um, either through investing as an angel investor mm-hmm. um, or just mentoring or just, um, you know, talking to, to other founders and, and helping them, you know, talk through what they're going, going through. That it would be helpful. So as an exit question, let's go to the other spectrum. Somebody who is an aspiring entrepreneur, hasn't started yet, but has an interesting project or a bold idea that they want to pursue. You're in a hurry. You're going somewhere. You have three to five minutes to give them advice as to whether they should pursue their bold idea or not. What are some of the things that you would like them to take into consideration with regard to pursuing their bold idea? So one, of course, is timing, right? You you need to try to get a feeling. Are you at the beginning of something, right? Are you at something that's going to change the world or change an industry, right? It's going to make someone's life different in a meaningful way. And it could be just a consumer that you're going to make their lives different, or it could be a company that you're going to provide an, a great ROI for if you do this thing. Um, but I think timing is really important and having a feel for the timing that you feel something big is coming. Uh, I'd, I'd ask them about that. Like the, how do they feel about it? Right. What, what signals are they seeing that makes mm-hmm. this that? Um, the second thing would be inspiration. How motivated and inspired are they to do this thing and why do they have the right reasons why they're thinking about being an entrepreneur? Because Entrepreneurship is a tool to go disrupt, but it's a tool to disrupt and do things that big companies aren't ready to do yet. Um, but it's best used with a vision, right? It's just mm. just doing it because you're going to get rich and make money isn't a great reason. Go be a banker. <laughs> There's better ways to make money, way easier, way less risky. Um, so you shouldn't be doing it to make money. Uh, you should be doing it to get this tool into place that you think is going to change things for these people mm-hmm. and and achieve this vision. So you can solve a problem better than some of the bigger, bigger corporations. You can do it faster, earlier. You can do it faster and you can do it before they're ready. And okay. the reason is that big companies require a market. And mm-hmm. when they require a market, it's a big market. Mm-hmm. If it's a small market, that's a little bit unclear still about what's going to solve the problem. It's, it's not time for them yet. It's too okay. early for them to go into the market it's a great time for a startup to go in. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be able to see how you're going to provide that value and how you're going to go achieve a bigger vision. And mm-hmm. I think without that bigger vision, it's really easy to get lost. You got to have something, this North Star, that's pushing you longer term. Mm-hmm. Even if you never get there, it's got to be the thing that's motivating you. Mm-hmm. And it truly has to be motivating for that entrepreneur. If it's not the thing that drives them, they probably shouldn't do it because mm. it's going to be a hard ride, it's going to be painful. Right, they're gonna go through um, a bloody battle to get this startup done, right? And they're gonna be stuck with it for four years, or five years, or ten years, or fifteen years of their life, right? To go and bring it to the very end. So they've got to have that that north star and really see that they're gonna change something. And the final thing I tell them is, um, is hey, keep your risk under control. Hmm. Don't do stupid things with your risk. Mm, the guide guide that I like to give people is that you should only take on as much risk as you're able to walk away with, with a smile. If you put your whole life on the line, your entire financial um, ability to survive on the line for the startup that you're building, um, that's probably too much. If you feel like losing that is going to be a major disaster that you can't get back up from ever again, um, that's going too far, right? You shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. You should be taking risks that have like a reward that you think is valuable, this vision, right? And this big thing you're going to change, um, but not unreasonable risk. Yeah. And not stupid risk, right? Like this kind of gamble, when it feels like it's gambling, I feel like that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's not the right way to use risk. So it's calculated yeah. risk. It's calculated risk and it's, it's risk with this this return of wow we can really change this market and we can really go do this thing that wasn't possible have an impact and Mm -hmm. achieve this vision that's what the risk should be about right Mm -hmm. you're gonna go put your own reputation and your own time and your own um even some of your own money on the line but don't go borrowing a huge amount of money you don't have don't gamble right Mm -hmm. don't don't do things that 
you you can't really justify ever walking away. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I've learned a lot. I like the North Star idea. <laughs> I like putting the tiny ML in the hands of lots of people. Hopefully we can take it to Africa and China and other places that... Many places in the, around the world. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Well, Christina, yeah. it's thank been a you. pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, my pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you.